0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian
1: Nations. Uh, Greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by my colleague Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Bernadette Del Piero of the California Solar and Storage Association. She's exec director. Bernadette, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. So we, like I mentioned before, before we got in the air, whenever we think of solar energy, we always think of you. So we've got some solar questions. It's coming up lately. It's become more of an issue, at least as I've seen. It's been much more of a political issue than and it has been in quite some time. And the reason, I think, is this net energy metering controversy. So my first question is, can you tell me what is that? And why are we in a controversial mode right now?
2: Yeah. Well, um, to take a step back, California has built um, about five nuclear power plants worth of rooftop solar in the past 15 years. It's an incredible investment in renewable energy, an incredible success story. And we're on the brink of pairing all of those solar systems with batteries to make that sun shine at night and to really, really, you know, do away with fossil fuel power plants once and for all. And uh, as a result of that success, um, we're at this inflection point in California policy where um, essentially we're deciding whether we're going to stay on this path of building renewable energy into our built environment um, and pair it with batteries um, and spare a little bit of our uh, open space and open land and, and, um, uh, and, 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 and max really how quickly we can get to 100% um, or whether we're going to put all of our eggs in the PGE basket and, and rely on them to get us to 100% clean energy and keep the lights on um, And so we're at this critical point and net metering, of course, is the policy that is very popular. It is used by all of these solar users around the state. 1.2 million people utilize this policy, and it is the, the main driver of, of rooftop solar. And so um, it is under uh, review. Um, it comes up periodically for review at a state agency called the Public Utilities Commission. And uh, when it comes up for review, you know, the utilities could win and push the market backwards and, uh, or, you know, rooftop solar could win and we could uh, continue to see the market grow. So that's why you're hearing so much about rooftop solar and it's becoming so politicized is because the Puppy Utilities Commission is reviewing that, that critical policy. If, if I put solar
1: uh, solar panels on my home, I get incentives. I qualify for incentives for credits, retail credits, tax benefits. So what would be the downside of putting solar on my home. I've seen that argument out there, but what it doesn't seem to be any downside here. It's a good thing to have solar power in my house. So what's the problem?
2: Yeah, there is no downside for the consumer and for all of us, whether you have solar or not on your roof. It benefits us all to build solar pair it with batteries, and to do that in the places where we live, work, and play. Okay. And that's for one simple reason. Um, one is it we can get to uh, with two simple reasons. Let me go back on that, Tim. Uh, for two simple reasons. One is we can get to our clean energy goals more quickly when we build it into our built environment. We can build a power plant worth of solar power every five months in California. That's way faster than anything we can do at the utility scale. Wow, that's so, uh,
0: amazing uh, stat.
2: It is an amazing statistic. we are building 500 megawatts worth of rooftop solar. That's a giant natural gas fire, you know coal-fired power plant worth of clean energy every five months in California. That's how significant our rooftop solar market is. It's one of the largest in the world and it happens fast. We can get these systems up in a matter of days to weeks for a large commercial. And that's faster than any other renewable energy resource can come online. So, from a climate change perspective, from a getting to our clean energy goals in the time that, you know, climate science dictates that we need to, um, this is really kind of the powerhouse of of renewable energy. Um, So, that's good for us, whether you have it on your roof or it's your neighbor that has it on your roof. This is getting us to our goals more quickly. Um, The second is… When you build renewable energy on rooftops, you are avoiding having to build really expensive infrastructure to deliver those electrons across great distances, right? So when we build all of our renewable energy out in the desert, you have to build the accompanying transmission lines, and then you have to build all these substations, these big, uh, you know, things you see out on the outskirts of. Towns where they they step down the electrons that come across these big huge wires to make them uh, usable inside our home. That is an expensive infrastructure, and it costs us a lot, a lot of money. Right now, five billion dollars, our ratepayers are spending on transmission and distribution investments this year alone to our investor-owned utilities. So we forego those investments. We buy past those investments when we build it in our city. So whether you go solar or not, and your neighbor goes or your church down the street or the school, we all save money by lowering the costs of running and building the electric grid. Well, then, the rub I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. The rub here, and the reason why this is all so controversial is not because consumers, it's not, you know, are losing, it's because the utilities make a profit off of all of that infrastructure. In California, we have a system in which pg e doesn't profit off of electrons sold, but rather off of electrons delivered across great distances. So the utilities have this built-in financial incentive to build power plants far away from people where, where people live and use energy so that they can build all of those transmission lines and all of that infrastructure because that's what they get a guaranteed rate of return on. And so that's why we have this clash between consumer and utility. It makes sense for consumers to build it locally. It's faster, it's more efficient, it protects our open space and it saves us all money, but that cuts into the profit of the investor owned utilities. And they're of course, constantly needing to, to show profit to their shareholders. And so that's why we're at this critical.
1: There's a bit of a division, uh, uh, between consumers and other consumers, those that have solar power installed and those that don't. And I was looking at analysis and, and 1139, AB 1139, the Lorena Gonzalez bill, which is on, um, has been moved to the inactive file. I don't know where it's going now or if it will later, but um, the issue she raises is whether people who have solar, rooftop solar, they get incentives from the utility companies, get certain price breaks, cost breaks, that are picked up by those that don't have solar. And so the inequity of people being able to afford to put solar on their on their roofs, as opposed to those that can't afford it, those that can't afford it, according to one analysis in the bill, it's about $3 billion a year of a shift that seems enormous. Is there any way of resolving that? <laughs>
2: Well, I think the way to resolve it is to pick it apart and show how uh, there's no credibility to those numbers. Those are pg numbers. This is the utility trying to pit ratepayer against ratepayer to squash the market for rooftop solar so that they can continue to build all of those transmission lines and make uh, you know ever bigger and bigger profits that's where this is coming from that analysis is not independent it comes from PG&E and, and let me tell you a little bit about how they factor figure those things out and i think you can see a little bit of how in you know not credible their numbers are first and foremost when they calculate these cost shift numbers they're saying that if you simply generate your own power you know, on-site and use it on-site, similar to growing your own vegetables in the backyard, you are contributing to a cost shift because you're not buying power from PG&E. It's no different than if you put in a more efficient HVAC system or you simply responded to a flex alert and didn't turn your thermostat down to 75 degrees on a hot day like we were all told to last last week you're consuming less energy you're more energy efficient you're more conserving in your in your usage of energy that is not a cost shift that is actually a benefit to the grid we should all use less energy in the middle of the day which is when the sun shines right so for the utilities to say if you're using, you put you put solar panels on your roof, and you're going to charge your electric car directly from those solar panels, which is how it works. When you have solar on your roof and you plug in your electric car, or you, your refrigerator is running, or your air conditioner is running, you're draw, you're drawing directly from those solar panels on your roof. That is not a burden on your neighbor, and for PG&E and the other utilities to try to frame it that way, it 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 does not pass the laugh test. And I can tell you that. Most people don't think that their energy bills are increasingly going up because of rooftop solar. They understand that their energy bills are going up because the utilities have an ever increasing need to profit. Can you
1: actually I mean can you have a house that uses all of its, Can you install rooftop solar so that 100% of the electricity you use in your house actually can be generated that way? That'd be so cool if you can do it. I don't, has anybody done that, or do you know of any cases where?
2: Yeah, it's it's called off grid systems. I mean, that's how the the whole solar rooftop solar industry got its start was providing power twenty four seven to to homes that weren't connected to the grid at all. And it's called a battery paired with a solar panel, so you can do that. What we forego, though, as a society, when we do that, is we actually forego the sharing of electrons on hot summer days. You know, California benefits tremendously from all of those rooftop solar systems, right? I I mentioned earlier 10 gigawatts of rooftop solar in the state of California connected to our grid. Half of those electrons that are generated are used on site. The other half are exported. They're utilized by your neighbors. They are sent and fed into the grid, and they're part of how we green up our electric grid. And they generate electrons exactly when California needs it on hot, summer, smoggy days. So, for us to go, just go off on your own solar user and never export and share, just keep it all to yourself, is actually a missed opportunity for us to work together to green up our grid and maximize all of that roof space, right? If we could plaster every single roof with solar panels, we could get to 100% clean energy by 2030. Well, and, and if i
0: remember right the uh, consumer the person with the solar panels on their roof can actually profit from this but my, my brother bought a house some years ago that had it was a new house it had solar panels and basically he was generating more power than he was using and his his uh PG&E, or i mean not pg e was smart i guess his his uh Dial was going backwards because he was supplying energy. So he's basically supplying more energy than he was using uh, in a day. So he was actually, it, it, he loved it. I mean, you know, this was something where not only did he feel good about it for the environment, but it was also saving him money. So, exactly, that, you know, is that a, a common thing for people?
2: Yeah, that's the main driver. Why people put solar panels on the roof is to lower their energy bill. And that's the whole idea of net metering is that you generate enough to cover your own needs on a hot summer day, and then you generate a little bit extra because you can send that to, back to the grid and get a credit, and that cuts it goes to count against your energy usage at night. That is actually a really good system for the grid at large because what you're doing, again, is you're sharing energy on a hot summer day when the grid needs it, right, when we're supply constrained because everybody is cranking their air air conditioning up on high and we just can't get the electrons into our cities fast enough. That's why we do these flex alerts because demand is outpacing supply. So if we can actually increase supply in our little hot box cities, <laughs> run all of our air conditioners off of local solar on rooftops, we can keep the lights on. And keep prices down for everybody by lowering demand, essentially, right? By increasing that the supplies locally, so you and then you use at night. It, at night, we have pl- a plethora of energy at nighttime. We don't have blackouts in the middle of the night. So to get a credit to offset your usage at night, that's actually also a really good system. This is why rooftop solar makes so much sense and net metering in the state of California because of that when we use energy and how we use energy and how it coincides exactly with solar. So for your brother and for the 1.2 million other consumers in California, that would include schools and churches, low-income apartment buildings, farms. They're saving money. They're not really profiting per se. It's not a money maker, but it's like energy efficiency. You get to save money on your investment. It always makes sense to put in those double-paned windows or invest in that more efficient refrigerator because you're going to recoup that cost in bill savings. That's what drives this market and what we need to preserve, and that's what the utilities are trying to overturn with this net metering decision. They're trying to make it to where it costs consumers more money to go solar as opposed to saves, and that the market will completely go away. I mean, very few people will invest in solar and pay more money as a result. And Let me just tell you exactly what the utilities want to do. They want to slash the export value 80%. So what you send back to the grid would be 80% less valuable than it is today. And on top of that, they want to charge people like your brother $70 a month of a fixed charge just for for having solar on their roof. A fee, basically a solar tax that says you put solar on your roof, you're not buying our product, so we're going to charge you a fee to recoup what we would otherwise have gotten from you. Hmm. What, what
1: does it cost to install a solar, you know, rooftop solar in a home? I don't know if there's any average cost, but say for a 2,000 square foot home, maybe single story ranch style somewhere, what do you think would be the pocketbook hit on, hit on that for somebody to do it?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's easy to say. It would be about $20,000 to $25,000 for a six kilowatt system, which is an average residential system in California. And that's before the federal. So, to be clear, there's really only one uh, subsidy right now or incentive in place um, that helps. down that cost, and it's a federal investment tax credit, the ITC, the investment tax credit, it's worth 26% off your system, and it comes in the form of a credit right off the top of your taxes. So that helps bring down the cost of that solar system to where the upfront cost isn't quite so high, right? It shaves it down 26%. Um, And then the rest of your savings, as you were mentioning, Tim, are made up over time in the form of bill savings, thanks to net metering. Most people see their solar system pay for itself somewhere between six and nine years in California, roughly speaking. So you, you're you still make that upfront investment and it's gonna take you six to nine years for that upfront investment after the tax credit to pay for itself. And then the system lasts for 20 to 25 years. So then you get savings beyond that. That's so the, the solar base.
0: panel the solar panel will last 20, 25 years?
2: Absolutely. We're, we, warrant, we guarantee it. They're warrantied by the manufacturers. Oh, okay. What
1: about the solar panels that um, we see all the time in images and photos are not on the roofs, but they're out in vast arrays, like in the desert, and you see hundreds of panels. Are they also collecting energy and, and feeding it back to whatever grid they're doing, or is it a private industry thing or providing power for a, a factory or something else? Or?
2: Well, you'll see both. Um, It's both. Uh, We have, you know, California has, um, to give you a sense of scale, we have about 15 gigawatts of utility-scale solar. Those are the big projects out in the desert that go for miles, right? You see from the air, you see them as you head to Vegas or out to Arizona. We have about 15 gigawatts of that type of project. And then again, just to put that into uh, perspective, we have around 10 gigawatts of rooftop. So rooftop almost matches the utility scale. It's almost 50-50 in terms of California's investment in, in solar. Those big projects are built by private companies and they sell their electrons to the utility, utilizing those big transmission lines. So they sell tons of electrons in the middle of the day. They feed them into those big transmission lines. And then those transmission lines take carry those electrons across hundreds and hundreds of miles. Into our cities. And that is where the cost comes in, right? There's the cost to generate, and then there's the cost to deliver. And what the utilities like to focus on in this whole net metering debate is simply the cost to generate. Nobody disputes that building a huge system gives you an economy of scale versus a tiny little rooftop, right? What they leave out of the equation is the cost to deliver the electricity. And that's where the real savings come from. If we look at our energy bills, if you were to dissect your electric bill and look at it really closely, the generation component is actually the smallest component. The biggest cost is transmission and distribution. It's all of that those poles and those wires and those substations that actually are really expensive and they're expensive to build and they're expensive to maintain. And of course, they provide a lot of liability for the state of California in the form of wildfires.
1: So, so the power go down, um, the further apart the transmission or the longer the transmission lines go. And I've, I've heard that come from conventional, from other sources, uh, other types of power. Is that true with solar energy as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We lose about 5, 10% of the electrons are lost just in the transmission. To transport, it's 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 less It's way more efficient to build the resource right at the point of use because you don't lose uh, the energy in, in the transmission. So yeah, it absolutely is less efficient to build it far away.
0: Well, just maybe far afield of what we're talking about, but uh, you might know. So one of the interesting things I've seen is that there is now wireless charging systems. So you're not actually connected via a wire. It goes through the air. And is that something that we're going to see more and more of in the future? Or is, that, is there just too much loss in the transmission? How does that work?
2: Yeah, I mean, our phones can do that right now, right? You just put it yeah. on the charging pad, and then they have made uh, car chargers where you just pull into the parking space and it can charge wirelessly. Um, I think we will see. Total science fiction. I know. it's. I can't <laughs> even really get my head wrapped around it. Um, so, yeah, I think we will see more of that. But I think we'll see, uh, that'll probably be more in a commercial setting. I think in a residential setting or an apartment building setting, we're going to probably continue to see, you know, the plugs that look almost like a gasoline, t- you know, uh, you know, pump um, that just uh, are, are based on wires because that is more efficient and it's a faster charge. So you can kind of control the charge a little bit better that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Bernadette, just one last question. Uh, is the PUC going to get involved in this? Uh, are they supposed to step in? And I mean, it seems like they're the obvious uh, agency to work this issue
2: over. So you anticipate that happening? The, the better question, John, is whether Governor Newsom is going to step in. The uh, PUC is already uh, poised to make a decision on net metering, on the net metering issue this year. Uh, we expect the decision sometime by January, actually. Um, and in fact, they're Right. They're poised uh, to make a decision this week. By the time this show airs, they may have already made the decision uh, that would really significantly harm rooftop solar. They're poised to consider a, uh, a, a change in the way they calculate the value of rooftop solar that will cut the, the value of rooftop solar in half and uh, make it very difficult for them to adopt a a, a consumer-friendly pro-rooftop solar decision on net metering. So, the big question is whether the governor steps in. The potential here is that California, uh, as Politico recently reported, is about to do something very off-brand. It is potentially about to turn the dial down on rooftop solar and slow down the growth the cleanest, most environmentally friendly way of generating electricity. and well,
1: that's On that somber note, note Bernard, thank you very much for chatting with us today. I uh, really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot, too. And now Tim Foster and I are going to chat about who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. The
2: worst week.
1: Again, that seems like this was a pretty easy call this week. Gavin Newsom really took a hit on Wednesday when Capitol Public Radio's Scott Roth and many other outlets uh, contributed to this story across NPR's California newsroom to do a story that said basically that the governor has misled readers and voters and the people in describing his efforts, his anti-firefighting efforts. In fact, he exaggerated his uh, efforts. For example, he said They had done preventive work on 90,000 acres. And in fact, according to CAP Radio, he had done work on about 11,300 acres, vastly overstating the amount that he had done. That was one example. There were others. Uh, Tim, what do you think? What's the damage he suffered on this?
0: You know, I think that the damage he will suffer will depend on how bad the fire season is. If this is not that bad of a fire season, then he can say, hey, look, I did what I said I was going to do. It just was inartfully articulated. Uh, if it's a bad fire season, he this is going to make that seem even worse. And I do think that there was sort of a self-inflicted wound component here in that, uh, according to that story, they had reached out to the governor's office many, many times. I think they said they sent a 500 word uh, email describing exactly what they were going to report and never got a call back over a two week period, which for me is inconceivable. I just, I cannot imagine that happening. And I can't understand how that decision was made not to do that. I suppose it is conceivable that somehow with people working from home during COVID, maybe the right person never saw it. But that to me
1: seems like a, really a self-inflicted wound here. Yeah, I agree. And I I think that um, it may come back to bite them. Of course, there's a recall, possible recall, likely recall election that's going to be held. And this is just grist for the mill of the recall proponents. They've already jumped on it. They've they've already been there. Yeah, they're all over it. Um, So I think it was a misstep. And you're right, it was a misstep not to communicate. You know, the old cliche is uh, talking to reporters gives you a lot of trouble, but not talking to reporters gives you more trouble. Clearly in that story, uh, communications, comment, uh, the position of the governor's office should have been well-reflected in that story. Should have showed up up somewhere in the copy, I think, and it didn't. And I think the story over the long term is going to have legs. I think it's one of the most important stories we've seen so far this year. In a single, you know, finite, discrete story, it was one of the most important we've seen so far. And I think it's going to be around for a while. You know, one
0: interesting component of this is that you know the next day you really saw a lot of allies of the governor come out and say hey you know I really support uh industrious reporting and I I support the press but I think this was misinterpreted and and you've seen a very similar message coming from uh folks the capital who you know want to have the governor's back and that's
1: been an interesting thing to watch as well sure yeah clearly he's got loyalists and a lot of them, and it would have seemed to me they would have jumped in sooner than that even. It would have seemed to me that um, their voice could have been in that story originally in some form. Uh, Originally, it wasn't, and that may exact the price from him as we go on through the political season this year. So not not a good week for the governor. Uh, Great. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Uh, This is John Howard saying thank you, and we will talk to you next time around. Thanks, John. Thank you. Capital Weekly Podcast
0: is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.